morning when I was coming in, uh, I was talking to Phil Stumbo. He said that uh, he, he was excited that he gets to fall asleep to a different voice this Sunday. So um, I'll try not to get too excited. I don't want to mess up anybody's nap. So um, we are solidly in the uh, summertime with RUF. And I have to say that uh, summer is always a weird shift. Uh, it's always a weird shift from having students all around, and then you like go into the summer. It's like, okay, what do I, what do I do now? You know, there's plenty of things to do, but it's using your time wisely. Uh, it takes years of working with RUF to make that transition well, and I don't know that I've worked enough years with RUF yet. But it involves a lot of uh, traveling around to see family, a lot of uh, fundraising, raising up some money for the next year. Uh, we have freshman orientations that happen all throughout the summer, so twice a week throughout the summer we're meeting, uh, meeting new uh, students that are coming to JSU. Uh, Timothy's helped out and been helping out with those things. It's a, it's a good thing to welcome students. It's our best way to kind of connect with them and, and planning and those kinds of things. So if you could be in prayer for us as, we, as we're in that kind of phase of proactive planning and everything like that. Uh, it's always um, it's always a, a weird thing to figure out exactly how to best use your time, but uh, like I said, there's plenty for us to do and plenty that we can be uh, be focused on. So um, I'm going to go ahead and just we're, we'll jump into the passage. We're going to be looking at First Peter three. 8 through 17. One of the things I get to do over the summer is I do different preaching events and, and, uh, and speaking and stuff. And so I'm going to uh, share this very adapted, a very adapted version of this sermon uh, next week at Anniston Bible Church for, for the youth there. We're going to do a youth conference there. So if y'all could be in prayer for that, that'll be on Sunday. Uh, I'll not, I will not be the only speaker. We'll have uh, several different speakers that will be there for that weekend. But just pray that God would uh, use that weekend to, to really minister to those, to those high school students um, and that we would get a lot of students. I think they invited uh, many different places to, to come and be a part. So if you, you would pray for that. But let me read this passage. I'll pray for us and, and then we'll dive in. 1 Peter 3. 8 through 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. For the, uh, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for always giving us your truth, truth that we would have never come up with on our own. Apart from you, we are lost. We are wandering in the darkness. Thank you for shining your light of revelation so that we can know you, so that we can understand the world, so that we can have hope in the midst of everything that we encounter on a day-to-day basis. Teach us in this time together. Help us to honor Christ the Lord as holy in this time together and when we leave this building. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Alright, so I want to talk about three things. Our lives demonstrate our actual hope. Uh, Second thing. Uh, The present impact of our future hope. And then... People are drawn 
to true hope like this. So these are our three, three things we're focusing on. Our lives demonstrate our actual hope. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessed. For to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. Our lives demonstrate our actual hope. We spent the past couple of days with my brother and sister-in-law moving them out of their apartment in uh, Atlanta into a new house in Marietta. And they've been living in a pretty rough apartment complex. Um, But they closed about a month or so ago on this house in Marietta. And the house was theirs. They'd already closed on it. They owned it. I mean, you know, technically the bank owned it, but that's hard to explain to our children who are there with us. But they owned a house. Um, They had not yet entered it yet. They knew that it was happening. They were anticipating this move. And it actually changed their future hope of being in this house, changed the ways that they interacted with their very problematic neighbors. You know, uh, they had one neighbor, the police showed up one night and they, uh, you know, several different police um, and they smashed in his door with a battering ram, I assume, I hope, to arrest this person. But that, that kind of thing happened all the time. People were partying all the time. I mean, they were ready to get out of there. But having that future hope changed the way that they interacted with and viewed their present because they knew that this was not a permanent dwelling place for them. They knew that they had something else ahead and so that gave them a little bit more patience, a little bit more perspective on interacting with the people around them. And it also changed the way that we uh, thought about loading and unloading all of their furniture in and out of the U-Haul and taking it up and down the stairs. They, of course, lived on the third story. There was, no, uh, there was no elevator or anything like that, so we had to take it down there. And then they had a two-story house, so we had to take it back up the stairs. You know. But in the midst of that Georgia heat, what they would say over and over and over again is, after all of this... This space is ours. It's our home, right? We will no longer be sojourners and exiles. We'll no longer be pilgrims. It will have all been worth it, right? And even more immediate than that for our kids, we were going to go get ice cream after finishing unloading. And that was, that was good too. Um, but and, and that's one thing to have the future hope of a house that you're going to move into because, you know, that also comes with a lot of responsibilities that my, my uh, brother and sister-in-law were so excited to get out of the apartment. But then they were also confronted with the, uh, with the responsibilities of home ownership. Like, oh, we have to fix this. This is our problem now. You know, like that was, that was something that they, had to, that they had to see. But what about the future hope when you're facing death? Future hope when you're facing death. And this is so cliche. But I'm sorry. We, Courtney and I just finished watching all the Lord of the Rings movies. We do it at the beginning of every summer. We watch the extended edition. So it takes us like several days. Um, but in The Return of the King, the last movie, inside of Minas Tirith, Gandalf and Pippin. So Gandalf the wizard, Pippin the little hobbit. They're along with the uh, remaining forces of Gondor who are preparing to make their last stand against the encroaching orcs. And the city gates were broken into, they were cornered, their defeat seemed certain. And Pippin looks up at Gandalf and he says, I didn't think it would end this way. And Gandalf, if you know the story, has already died. He already passed through death. And he was resurrected again to finish his work on Middle Earth. He looked down at Pippin and he said, End? No, the journey does not end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver silver glass. And then you see it. White shores and beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. And Pippin says, that doesn't sound so bad, right? 
That, that future hope that the worst thing that could possibly happen to them would lead them into silver glass, white shores, a far green country. That, that gave them hope for the battle that was coming. Gave them hope to face even death. By the way, that's just a movie thing. It wasn't in the books. And so that still doesn't count as a Tolkien quote. I did not t- quote Tolkien in the sermon. So, um, But yeah, so our hope, our future hope can create joy and patience and empathy even in the darkest of circumstances. And if you lack hope... If you're not looking forward to the future, if you think that your future is uncertain, then uh, in the best of circumstances, you can be angry and impatient and despair. You know, we all know those people who seem like in the darkest of circumstances, they can always find the silver lining, right? But then we also have those friends that in the best of circumstances, they can always find the thing that's bad. Always find the thing that's messed up. The thing that's missing. If you don't have any friends like that, then maybe you and I could go and get lunch. And y'all could, we could, y'all could get to know me a little bit better. Um, that, that what our hope is, our hope or our lack of hope, impacts the way that we interact with the present. This instruction here is not given as a bare command, right? And Peter starts it off with, finally. This is the last thing, right? He's like gone through a list. This is the end of a long se- section of household hold codes. How you're supposed to conduct yourself. He writes to servants and masters, to husbands and wives, to all people who are submitting to the government, to an unjust government. And it flows out of, it's based on their identity that they have. We see that in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That that's their identity that all of these commands flow out of. He's saying this is already your present reality and that's how this will affect your lives going forward. This is how it will affect you when you live. And all of this comes out of 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4, the future hope that we have. He, he, Peter starts it, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Be born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection from the dead. Uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, is not going away. This is secure. This is sure. It is much more sure than having closed on a house and moving in. It is kept protected by God himself. Live in light of your hope is what Peter is telling the people. And what's commanded in this section, right? Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I think this is mostly directed toward fellow believers. Empathy with believers. And this is really difficult, you know? As you're interacting with other believers, whether they're in this church or outside of this church, this is what we're call- how we're called to interact with them. It's not that there will never be any disagreements, but that when there are disagreements, that you treat that person with the utmost respect and dignity. That they are priests. That they are part of this holy nation that you're a part of. That they are fellow heirs with you of this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. And it's not just with Christians, but it's also directed toward outsiders, right? Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Notice that it doesn't just say, don't seek revenge. Why do I seek revenge on a day-to-day basis? Why do I seek revenge? 
Because I think that no one else will defend me. And it's up to me to make sure that I get justice. That I don't have any future hope for things to be set right. I'm all alone. It's up to me. And, and revenge can either be hostile retaliation, key in somebody's car or like, you know, I don't know. I don't know what else you would do. Slashing their tires, you know. can be hostile retaliation like that. Or, what's the more southern way and what's the way that I typically do, trashing somebody and their reputation behind their back. You know, complaining about them, griping about them, making them look bad. Not only are we to avoid that, not repay reviling for reviling and evil for evil, but we're actually called to bless those who mistreat us. On the contrary, bless. I, I came across a story um, while I was studying for this. Uh, a Christian soldier living in the barracks with his unit each evening, he would read his Bible and pray before retiring. And he was reviled and insulted by the soldier across the aisle from him. And one night, a pair of muddy combat boots came flying at the Christian. The next morning, the hostile soldier found his boots at the foot of his bed, cleaned and polished and ready for inspection. The person who told this story said several soldiers in this company eventually became Christians as a result of the inner strength of one who could return blessing for insult. We can only do that kind of thing. We can only do this kind of thing that we're called to if we have a hope that extends beyond the present moment. If we have something that we can look forward to and rest in and, uh, and focus on beyond our present circumstances. So what is that present impact of our future hope? Let's look at verses 10 through 12. This is a quotation from Psalm 34, which we read at the beginning of the service. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. At the end of the day, Everyone, Christian, non-Christian, whatever your background, we are looking to have a good life. Right? We want, we want a good life. We all have different definitions and different expectations of what that means, but we all want to have an enjoyable and good and positive life. The problem is so much of our definition of the good life focuses on the immediate, the right now. Like, what will make me feel good in this moment without thinking about the future? Without thinking about the impact that it has or who it hurts? That we're focused on the temporary in this present life. But the Bible, specifically this passage, tells us how we can have a good life. Right? Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Do you want to love your life? Do you want to have good days? Then how do you do that? Keep your tongue from evil. Your lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Live in this way that we've already been commanded. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Those kinds of things lead us into a good life. We don't do that because we're not anchored in hope. We're not anchored in, in the hope that we have as believers. And so how are we anchored in that? What, are the th what is a thing to remember that anchors us in that hope moment by moment as we seek to live in this way that we've been commandment, commanded? This is the hope that we have. In verse 12, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. What a wonderful gospel promise that is. Just, just think about that. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. Not one eye, but both eyes. Not one ear, but both ears. He's giving us His fullest attention. 
And his eyes are open. His, his ears are open to us. His eyes are on us. It's not one day when we're living like we're supposed to that God will begin to pay attention to us. It is a present reality now. This is the hope. This is the security. This is the reality that we live out of. Is that He is paying attention to us. He is focused on us. His eyes and ears are always continually on us and open to us. We never leave His sight we never speak, we never open his, our mouths without his compassionate hearing. How little do I rely on this gospel promise? How, how little do I take this seriously? How often do I feel like I am on my own and no one is taking notice of me? But the truth is, what scripture says, what reality is, is that the God of the universe is always unceasingly focused on us. Not because we're good, but because we are his chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Think about moving again. If you have some kind of precious item that you're moving, something that maybe it's an heirloom from family, maybe it's something that's really expensive, it's something you value. When you're moving around, you're going to pay special attention to that particular thing. You're going to watch it. Is it bumping into the walls? Is there any crack in it? Is there anything that might risk the security of this thing? That's how God treats us. That is the care and the compassion and the attention that he pays to us at all times unceasingly. When we're awake, when we're asleep, when we're in church, when we're at our job, wherever, God is paying attention to us. Now the flip side of this is true as well. What's the next part? The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's an encouragement to us because those who do evil will not prosper forever. If we're focused just on present circumstances, it seems like they will. It seems like they're only enriching themselves. They're only growing more and more power. It seems like we're on our own. We have to fight these people. We have to rescue the world. But if we remember... That the face of the Lord is against them. Then they flourish like a flower of the field. That they're pretty and desirable, beautiful today, but tomorrow they'll be gone. Right? That, they are, that their success, that their, their um, foundation is on unstable ground. That their house is built on sand, like Jesus says. That the assaults and the attacks that they pour on us are fleeting and they will disappear. Because God watches our every step. Because he chases after us to do us good. He never turns his eye away. And he never closes his ear to his children. That, that's the present impact of our future hope. If God has a hope for us that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, then he's going to watch us every step along the way toward that hope that he has planned for us. That we are precious in his sight. Last thing, people are drawn to this hope. What's the one thing that we all have in common with each other across religious beliefs, across political views, across racial and generational divides, throughout different regions in the country? Here's a quote from a study that was done. Sizable majorities of U.S. adults say that in 2050, just over 25 years away, the U.S. economy will be weaker the United States will be less important in the world. Political divisions will be wider and there will be a larger gap between rich and poor. Far fewer adults predict, predict positive developments in each of these areas. 
the one thing that we all have in common is that we're not very optimistic about the future. No, nobody across whatever beliefs that you might have, when they're surveyed, they do not have very glowing uh, expectations for what will be the state of our country in the next 25 years. What a great thing to have in common, right? Worse than that, um, it's even worse when you get into younger demographics who the people I work with, maybe people that live in your home or people that you care about. They did a study and found that 56% of people ages 16 to 25 believe, quote, humanity is doomed. And 75% describe the future as, quote, frightening. Think of all the media that is popular right now. It's post-apocalyptic. It is alien invasion it is disease ravaging the world. Things are falling apart and there are no heroes to save us. That is the media that young people consume. That they're told on the news that, you know, that climate change with climate change that in however, with probably within their uh, lifetime, the earth will become uninhabitable. That the, the economy is going to be worse. That, you know, we're on the brink of World War III. There's not much to hope in. Not much to look to. Gen Z, uh, this group, is about twice as likely as Americans over the age of 25 to battle depression and feelings of hopelessness. With that backdrop, hope becomes incredibly important. A hope-filled a filled community becomes vital. It's like an oasis in a desert. To, have a, to, to be a community filled with hope. To have a future hope that is not dependent on who's in the White House or not. But is something that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Now, look, look at this passage. It says, who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? It says, if you're doing a good thing, if you're trying to live a good life, if you're living in this hope, then who's going to mess with you? And it's kind of interesting because there's this like tension in this book, right? That some people will be drawn to you because they'll be like, oh, this is so beautiful. I'm not going to mess with this. I'm actually intrigued by this. But then the next verse he says, but, you know, even if people do get mad about it, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, even if people do attack you. Some people are drawn into hope because they see the beauty. Some people are drawn into hope because they are threatened by it. <laughs> because they, they are angry or uh, mad that they, you might have a hope that they don't. That you have a security that they don't have and they might threaten you. But how are we to be prepared for either? Either way, it says... Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is a quotation from Isaiah 8, 12, and 13. That we are to regard Jesus as more important than those around us, than the circumstances around us. That we're to be more concerned about preserving His honor than we are preserving our own honor in the eyes of others. And what's one of the ways that we do that? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So, um, rather than me describing our hope, I thought it would be really cool to just read a bunch of passages from the New Testament about our future hope. The first we've already read a couple of times. We have an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And after we have suffered a little while on this earth, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not one lacking. Every spiritual blessing. And He has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him so that in the, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages for eternity, 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And what is this glory that Paul references here? It's more than just pleasant circumstances. It is about being fully united to God, to the Father, Son, Holy Holy Spirit. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. For now we see in a mirror dimly. We can see God dimly, imperfectly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I saw no temple in the city, For for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And His lamp is the Lamb. By its light shall the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the city, of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's our hope. And you don't have to be able to, you know, we often read this always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We don't have to be able to answer skillfully, philosophically every single objection that comes up against Christianity. We just have to articulate our hope. Blaise Pascal said something to the effect of share your faith in such a way that people will wish that it were true. And then tell them that it is. And then it comes back around to how we live. Make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. With humility, meekness, and fear. Having a good conscience. You know, so often when somebody leaves the faith... A lot of the time, it has nothing to do with philosophical or theological objections to to the belief system of Christianity. It rather has to do with the way that Christians live. Our, Our way of life can either undermine our articulated hope, or it can reinforce it. 
If we live in a way that, it, that shows that we don't actually have a future hope, that we think that the future is unstable and tenuous, then it will undermine this hope that we express. So, as you think about your life, as I've been preparing this sermon, think about my life. Do I live that way? Am I actually anchored in this hope? Do I, do I really think that this is, that this is true? So much of the time, my answer is no. And that's a, a call to repentance for myself. But remember, Jesus died for exactly that. He died to secure our hope. He died to redeem us. He has made it secure so that it can never be taken away. And as if you want to be a good witness for Christianity, then reflect on your hope. Reflect on the hope that you have. Wonder at the beauty of Jesus. Sanctify Him more. Honor Him as holy more than we focus on the world and what happens here. Know that your hope is greater than the present circumstances and it will transform your life. Spurgeon said, For the Christian, this world is the closest thing to hell that we will ever, ever experience. It only gets better from here. That is the hope that we have. That is what we're called to focus on. I read this quote um, uh, earlier this week from John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. And it has been stuck in my head and I want it to get stuck in your head too. He says this, The sun in his daily course beholds nothing so excellent and honorable upon earth as a Christian. That perhaps he, the Christian, may be confined to a cottage and is little known or noticed by men, but he is the object and residence of divine love. He is the charge of angels, and he is ripening for everlasting glory. We are ripening for glory. We are ripening, being prepared to behold God face to face for eternity. His eyes are on us. His ears are open. We can have hope. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this hope that we do not deserve, but that you purchased on our behalf. That is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. Father, thank you that your eyes are on us because we belong to you. Thank you that your ears are always open to our prayer, to the feeblest, faintest, weakest prayer that we make. Both ears are open to them. Let us be so anchored and grounded in this hope that as we interact with those around us, whether it's good interactions or even more so in the bad interactions, that we would have the strength by the grace of the Holy Spirit not only not to seek revenge, but actually to bless. And that as we do that, that will attract people in. Like an oasis in a desert, they will see us living by something different, some different code, and they will long to have that same kind of hope. Help us to express it well when we're given the opportunity. Thank you so much that this now, in this moment, is the furthest away from you we will ever be. That we will only draw closer and closer to you. To, spend one, to one day spend eternity with you, face to face. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
the book of Revelation, we have uh, the expectation of the wedding supper of the Lamb. That we get to feast in glory with our husband Jesus one day. And that this, Jesus makes reference to this, to this future feast in glory when he institutes the Lord's Supper. And this is a preview of that coming feast that we are reminded that one day we commune with one another here. We commune spiritually with God as we take this. And we will one day commune with Him face to face for eternity in glory. So all Christians, all believers, all those who have this hope of eternal life are invited to partake this meal and to get a foretaste of the, the feast that is to come. Um, if this is something you're still wrestling with, that you're still wondering about, we, we would encourage you to reflect on these promises. Um, that if you would like prayer, then you can come up and, and, uh, and the elders would be happy to, to meet with you and to pray and to, and to talk with you more about this. Um, but for those of you who haven't been here, we're going to go, this section back here behind the divider is going to go back there to, the, to that back table. Same thing for this one back here. But y'all who are in the front will come here to, to, the, to the front with us. Let me pray for us and we'll set these elements apart. Father, thank you so much that you give us this meal to taste, to touch, to be reminded physically of the spiritual realities that are already at work within us and that, it, that await us one day in the future. Uh, help us to be nourished and drawn closer to you as we take this meal together. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The night in which Jesus was betrayed and arrested and beaten and crucified to secure our hope, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, this bread is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
same manner he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. A stand in response to God's good news and the, this eternal hope that we have in Him by singing and, and respond by singing, Great is the Lord. Let's stand and sing together. Receive this benediction. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, dude. Appreciate it.